Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast, everybody. It's Robert Fay in Portland, Oregon, uh, and Roman Sivkin, of course, in New York. Hello, Roman. And, and our sound engineer, Heston Hoffman, will be uh, joining us today. Uh, and we're reading a book that um, for a couple of years now has been getting quite a bit of attention and, and maybe most notably as um, uh, a book that President Obama was reading when he was uh, the President of the United States, if you remember him. Um, and he, he he loved the book, and it's a uh, Chinese science fiction novel um, called The Three-Body Problem by uh, Li Yu Xixin. Um, and it is actually part of a, um, a trilogy. Uh, this is the first book. We won't be discussing um, the two subsequent books, but uh, The Three-Body Problem was the first and is massive. Um, it's massive in China to the point where um, it's hard to get our head around a, a novel as celebrity. Um, and this book is read from the bottom of society all the way to the top. And um, uh, they're making a, a blockbuster movie about it. Um, so uh, he is a huge star. And uh, the book uh, won the Hugo Award, the prestigious science fiction award. And uh, the first uh, Asian writer uh, to do so. So we're going to uh, jump into that today. First translated uh, book to do that. Indeed. Way, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll jump into this book today. Um, but we thought we might do something a little different. And, um, you know, as always, uh, a month passes and there's all sorts of interesting uh, news and developments on, I think, what's now being called book Twitter. It's its own sort of uh, microcosm. And, and Roman, you know, we had been kind of friends and admirers of um, a blog uh, called The Untranslated. And so yes. I, I saw um, his, uh, I, I have to admit, I don't know the author of, of the blog. Well, we know, you know, we know his first name. It's Andre. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's a bit and I think he likes it that way, which is fine. Yeah. But, um, you know, maybe you can kind of jump in and, and uh, I know that I saw a tweet from you that kind of caught my attention. Yeah, no, I tweeted no with a bunch of O's. Uh, you know, the whole tweet was just N O O O O O O O O O et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because I was very upset, you know, because uh, uh, Andre tweeted that um, this was, you know, he was closing down the blog, uh, which is called the Untranslated, and it, it dealt with um, for a few years now. It dealt with um, books that are not available in English that really should be, but also books that are. Um, you know, the types of books that I love, uh, encyclopedic, uh, big, complicated, complex, I should say, not complicated, there's a difference, um, uh, books that really are uh, universes uh, onto themselves. And, uh, and yeah, he, he would blog, uh, have these really uh, incredibly long uh, blog posts and very detailed and just uh, not scholarly in, 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 in a kind of a dry sense, but scholarly in a, in a fascinating sense, really delving deeply uh, into the books that he was examining. And not only that, but, you know, Andre just went to this incredible length of learning some of these languages just so he could read these books and, 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 explore some of that journey uh, you know on this blog a really fascinating incredible endeavor and i was very very sad to see it go but you know andre is going to stick around and i'm sure he's going to continue doing his magical stuff um and so we'll 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 surely hear from him again uh but the actual blog is closing uh so but it's still there for anybody uh interested in translated literature or any really literature that that reaches the peaks of uh, you know of the art form. Um, go to this blog blog. Uh, the untranslated is called, and um, explore some of the older posts. Uh, fascinating stuff. That uh, I mean, I've learned so much from from those posts, and uh, got excited about things that uh, you know, potential reads in the future once it does get translated. Because I'm not going to go learn Norwegian as much as I would love to to read uh, some incredible work of a thousand pages. I'm just, I just, I don't have it in me. I'm not yeah. a good person that way. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we, we have uh, him to thank for introducing us to Josh Calvo. Yes. Who is a, a, tr mm -hmm. uh, a I should say, a, uh, a beginning, not beginning in the sense of um, his craft is, is not 
uh, learned or or professional, but he is um, starting his way into his career. He is a translator of Arabic and Hebrew literature, and we we got a chance to talk to him a few podcasts. Yeah, ago. Yeah, he's a young so scholar, like, really, really yeah, fascinating exactly. mind. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think uh, we also just chatting uh, before we hit record that. Um, Bed Lerner, uh, a, a writer that we admire a lot, I think um, most notably for leaving the Atocha Station, his novel, that he has a new book out, The Topeka School, and, and you were just saying maybe some of the initial reactions were a little bit yeah, it's not getting, muted or I mean, it's, it's obviously not, it's also not getting much of a reaction, period. Uh, it's kind of a quiet book. Uh, he's not particularly pushing it right now, at least not that I've seen. Uh, the publisher is not pushing it. Um, but he's an intriguing writer. Uh, you know, I, I like some of his earlier stuff. Um, people have compared this recent novel to more like a Jonathan Franzen type of stuff. And I'm not a big fan. I know you are, Rob. Of, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. So interesting. In any case, it's all interesting. And also, I wanted to mention Duck's Newburyport um, making a lot of waves uh, in on book Twitter. <laughs> and it should make a lot of waves because it's a freaking big book. If you drop it in the pond, it'll make a lot of waves. And it is making a lot of waves. It's about a thousand pages. It's uh, mostly composed of one sentence. Um by the daughter of uh of notable uh, James Joyce scholar, Richard Elman. Uh Lucy ah. Elman. So of course a novelist of her very good novelist of her own uh sort of making. Um but this book just came out of nowhere by Galley Beggar Press from England. Um small press that picked it up kind of took a chance on this book and it's and it's and it's fascinating, you know. Um, many of the sentences are, well, not the sentences, but the fragments of the sentences begin with you know, the fact that. So it's the fact that, blah, 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 the fact that, blah, blah, blah. And it just goes on like that for about a thousand pages. Sound dreary, but it's not. It's really cool. fascinating. Um, yeah. And, and actually, we're, a review in the New York Times just came out a few days ago. And I, and I wonder how uh, I've scanned a few of the reviews and, um, you know, how, how does that come out of or her reading or experience with uh, Carl Ove Nosgaard in My Struggle, right, which which also has a, a daily yeah, I, documentary. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, the, the, the desire to always, the desi there's always the novelist desire to have the novel that, you know, I call it the everything novel, to, to sort of capture life both in its macro and micro mm. uh, qualities. Um, and I, I say, I say, Yes, that that's what I love in novels. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I, I haven't I haven't read it. I haven't even really looked at it uh, except for the reviews. And I mean, I'm salivating. I'd like to take a bite into it. You know, just <laughs> in no time. Yes, <laughs> too many other things to read. You know, so but it's on my horizon and it will remain there. And I'll probably at some point uh, we'll get to it. I just at this point in my life, I'm trying to reduce, and this seems to be the opposite of reducing. <laughs> <laughs> A thousand-page novel, you know, boom, there you indeed, go. Indeed. Well, um, excellent. And and so uh, turning to the three-body problem, um, you know, we could start a million ways. Um, a couple of things come to mind. One is, this is the second science fiction novel that we've done. Uh, Hested and I spoke about The Left-Handed Darkness by Ursula mm -hmm. K. Le Guin. I think you were uh, down under the weather. Right. Uh, and so we, we talked a bit about... Um, you know, as I said on that podcast, that I'm not a huge reader of science fiction. Um, you and Heston have read a lot more than I have and, and are more grounded in that. So I think, um, you know, I think that's always worth kind of exploring is I'm making the assumption that a lot of our listeners don't regularly read science fiction. So, you know, how, how should they understand this book and, and maybe understand the tradition a little bit? Um, so there's that. And then there's also the fact that, you know, this book I think one of the reasons that it is so so popular and impactful both in the West and in China is that it's it's coming out at a time as China right becomes this massive power and it mm. it's it's fitting into what uh, historians call the the Thucydides trap and Thucydides wrote the uh, history of the Peloponnesian War about the Spartans and the Athenians and the basic um, principle that historians and, and military historians have have called from this is that a you know a rising uh, uh, aspirational power um, that's threatening an established power 
that this will ultimately always have to lead to war. And so I, I think that's always in the background of, you know, the trade war with China and this sort of competition mm -hmm. over technology. And so, you know, there was a really great New Yorker profile of, um, of Xi Qin. And he, uh, I guess, initially copped to the fact that, yeah, you know, this book has allegorical qualities. And it's, you know, if you think of the, the Trisolarans as the West, perhaps, or the United States in terms of its technological development, and then China is kind of Earth, that he's exploring, you know, this... this. Uh, yeah, I don't think he actually meant it that way, though. I mean, it's in retrospect, yeah, he, he agrees that it could be an allegorical. Right, and now he's... I don't think he's writing it that way, consciously. And, and now he's really backed away and said, look, yeah. I'm a writer... Um, which is which is always the 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 domain the safe domain of of any fiction writer, but um, you know I, I'm obviously kind of less interested in that because that is taking it outside the context of the text. Um, but there is, you know, maybe I'll just start with this. As you pointed out, it's a translated book. Uh, you know, Heston and I had uh, we had dinner the other night and we chatted a bit, and I think the ideas are exciting in this book. I, 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 I love them. I want to talk about those ideas, but it is a literary text. And as a literary text, the prose was so boring mm. and so ordinary. I, I told Heston, I felt as if someone had, had read this novel aloud in Mandarin and some uh, translator had just taken a literal, like a stenographer, just typed down, you know, the facts. So there is, there is, absolutely no sense of any style coming from from this this author um and, and maybe the ideas here are so interesting that it it doesn't matter but it mattered for me right so yeah but one thing to point out is that the the translator is himself a very accomplished science fiction writer so mm -hmm. Yeah, and and so that raises more questions. Is it well? If you look at the in in the 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 translator's uh, postscript, he says that he tried to make the language um, as close as possible to the original. I mean, he's not even we're not even talking at this point about the, the cultural illusions and, and translating those, um, but just the, the actual language. So he kept this very straightforward, very simple, like the original. And, and uh, you know, if you listen to some interviews with the author, the actual, you know, the, the Xi Jinping Liu, uh, he says, he just comes out and says, it. I was not, I'm not trying to write literature. That's not what I'm about. I love science and I want to start with the ideas. The characters don't really matter to me that much. Even your people asking me like, what about this character? What about this? I love this character. And what do you foresee for her and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I don't really know. I just, you know, I start with the ideas and I tack on the characters and, make them go through the paces to illustrate the idea. And that's kind of the essence of hard science fiction, though I have a with that in, in, in general. Um, if I may just quickly just talk about this divide, the hard science fiction, the soft science fiction. It's Yes, please. It's a little bit artificial, but it's 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 a it's a more publishing industry term than anything else, but it does describe some sort of reality, which is to my mind, this, it's the, you know, like, you know, there's a distinction between hard sciences and soft sciences, like sociology is a soft science and physics is a hard science. Well, similarly in, in fiction, when you're talking about hard science fiction, you're talking about something that deals with very real or, or the latest uh, sort of um, discoveries in science and taking those those um, either laws or theories and actual scientific things and then building a, a story structure using them, uh, as opposed to soft science fiction, which in many, many instances deals with um, things that are, you know, again, from the, from the soft sciences, so to speak, anthropology, sociology, uh, uh, psychology, uh, where it just kind of deals more with... Um, relations between characters uh, set in obviously a, some, a certain, you know, way in a scientific way. Um, but it's a very, I don't know, it's a very, um, I, I never liked that distinction. It's it's a good sort of, it's a good approximation for what you can expect from a book if you know, you, you know, it's a hard science book or, or not. 
Um, but like, what would you call the left hand of darkness, for instance? Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's not a hard science fiction book. Um, yeah, I, I think Ursula Le Guin in particular is seen as you know the, the champion of, of right. science fiction, right? Right, right, right. right. Because right. they exactly. deal with anthropology and right. sociology and those kinds of uh, you know soft sciences and right. Quotes. But hard hard science fiction seems to be the Seems to be the bestseller. It's it's the it's the best selling. You know, you, you have uh, people like Arthur C. Clarke, Asimov, from uh, from the more you know the, the distant uh, <laughs> the past of science fiction, semi distant, I guess. Um, yeah. But um, they seem to be like Michael Crichton. I think in you know, the, the drama, the strain, all these books, they're hard science fiction. They're and people are tend to make blockbuster movies out of those. Kinds of, I think because the concepts are easier to deal with because they're not so human, quote unquote. They're not. They just have to do with the physical universe, not with our psychology and our interactions as humans, which are <laughs> very tricky. <laughs> you know, and the, and the real province of novelists and, and writers. But uh, you know, for again, Xi Jin Liu admits it. Uh, he does not hide behind any kind of facade of oh, I'm a I'm a writer. I'm a fancy writer. He just says I I love science. I love the ideas it inspires. I think it's the most incredible thing in the world, science. And so I'm going to write a story based on that. Uh, my various interpretations of all these ideas. Yeah, this book actually caused a bit of a crisis for me. I think looking back. Because, oh really? Oh so? Yeah, because. Um, I've always I've always enjoyed science fiction, right? I've read a bunch of science fiction, and this book has had you know, like Rob mentioned, has been praised by just about everyone, mm. and I just really didn't enjoy it, you know. And I started thinking maybe I'm just not the target audience for this <laughs> novel. Mm. Maybe I just don't care enough about physics to really enjoy, you know, what this book is getting at. Yeah. Um, you know. Mm. So maybe what about you, Rob? Rob, did you? Yeah. Did yeah. You, I mean, because you have a similar kind of, I think, similar approach to science fiction. Yeah. Uh, not, I, not, not as Huston, but, you know, it's like, well, you're not I, a huge fan of I, hard science I, fiction. I'll answer that. I can answer that question in a, in a less indirect way. Um, you know, I, I, I stumbled across a documentary the other day from about Borges, the Argentinian master. Mm. And he was talking to the reporter and he said, you know, um, I'm first a reader. I'm second a dreamer, and I'm third a writer. And so with uh, Xi Xin, I mean, I would say he would he would probably answer that question. I'm first a computer engineer, mm-hmm. I'm second a dreamer, and then perhaps I'm a writer. And so I guess my thoughts are, um, and I I agree with Heston in terms of his characterization of of the left hand of darkness as she she's operating, she's a literary artist, and so with with the hard science fiction, the cynical part of me, and this is the part of me that might represent a lot of people who are suspicious of science fiction, I, I almost want to say, well, fine, the three-body problem is what it is, but stay in your genre ghetto. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't, don't propose that this has literary value. Well, I don't think right. anybody does that. I think it's just as a book, it just made a lot of waves. As a fiction, I mean, it's still fiction. I mean, the well, guy made I the mean, story up, and the story is. I Moby mean, Dick is fiction. I mean, it's, <laughs> yes, but I mean, this, this this deals with. I mean, this deals with uh, with string theory. We have eleven dimensions. We have aliens. We have alien communication. I mean, all these things are are really awe-inspiring and that's that's I mean, if you can read this book uh, and i think that's why it made such a an impression on people it's um it's it's awe-inspiring i mean it's, some of the ideas are huge here in terms of like you know our universe and what does it mean uh, i mean the idea of an of an alien alien contact has been explored so many times but here's yet another take and it's a little bit different but still it's it's um but look, here, here's what we're talking about. And you and I have talked about this endlessly. And, and you've been an advocate since we were kids to say, look, there are certain authors, uh, Philip K. Dick, Stanislaw Lem, they, you know, they break all barriers. They break all categories. There's literature. And this is an example yes. of literature. And so I, I'm, I'm opening myself up to the three-body problem and saying, you know, I'm open. 
And well, it, look, it, maybe we picked the wrong book for that because because this is a straightforward bestseller. There's no um, there's no literary merit to it, really. But but uh, but why not? But the ideas are interesting, but the ideas are not, not also that original. <laughs> so why is it such a big seller? Why is it? Why is it? Why did you know? I think the moment it was the right moment for it. By the way, it was first published in two thousand and six or something like that. It took ten years or something to get translated. It was while it was a huge hit in China. I don't know why it took ten years. There's like never such a lag with with other countries, you know. When you have a huge yeah. bestseller somewhere, I don't know, and you know, in Hungary, and everybody reads reading it in Hungary, you know, we, we're going to get a translation within a year or two, usually, yeah. anyway. You know, maybe, so it's kind of a, maybe uh, Ken Liu is uh, he chills a bit, you know. He's <laughs> well, there's plenty of people who can do the job of translating. Yeah. Plenty. So it's it's. I mean, just I just think it's weird that it took yeah. ten years, you know. Um, and of course, it's like every freaking science fiction book nowadays. It's of course a trilogy. I mean, what the hell? Everything's a trilogy now, <laughs> in, in in that genre. I'm I'm a little bit I'm a little bit. I used to be. I am. I should say a huge. I'm I'm old school in that I I, I don't even like to use the term sci-fi. It grates on my nerves. <laughs> sci-fi because it's not sci-fi. Sci-fi. To people like me who grew up in the in the 70s and 80s reading science fiction, sci-fi was a d derogatory term for you know stuff that you see on TV like Star Wars and 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 stuff that doesn't really qualify as, as literary science fiction because that's gotcha. science fiction. You have to actually say the whole fucking thing. Yeah, it's not just sci-fi. Um, and and I had a I, I have I should say it's funny how I slip into this past tense with science fiction because in a strange way I have kind of moved. Away from being a huge fan, uh, it d does seem to appeal to a younger me much more than to a middle-aged me. Um, also, the golden age of American science fiction was, what, in the late 30s and, and, and 40s or so. Yeah. Uh, and then you have uh, the new wave, which was a wonderful development in science fiction in the late 60s and 70s, which kind of brought in this softer type of science fiction. People like Ursula K. Le Guin, Thomas M. Dish writing beautifully just writing like angels but writing science fiction at the same time not just some literary novels you know or stories mm -hmm. um really really um delving deep into the science fiction sort of psyche and what's possible and and let me uh, i'm going to say something very provocative that, which could lead to a hour a week-long month-long year-long discussion but let's not but i'm just going to say it um everything anything that has been written in the past 300, 400 years that's literary, in my mind, should be called science fiction. We live in a world that is defined by science. Whether we use scientific terms or we do not use them in our writing, our lives are infused with science and the scientific way of thinking. Whether we, are, we like science fiction or we don't, again, it doesn't matter. Everything is science fiction. Now, things are more explicitly science fiction when they deal with actual science topics in the literature, in, in the actual content. Then we, the publishing industry calls it science fiction. But you pick up Duck's Newport Report, you pick up uh, Finnegan's Wake, you pick up uh, War and Peace. These are all science fiction. I mean, I get, I, I said I was going to say something provocative, and here, here it is, I'm saying it. It's all science fiction because it takes place in a world that's infused with the materialistic, the sort of the objectivist uh, way of thinking that's scientific at its basis. Um, so you're, anyway. you're saying opposed to uh, the Iliad or, uh, yes. you know, the Aeneid yes. or, or something yes. or, or Hamlet. Which, which in a strange way, those works are, are almost inaccessible to us. We can read them. We can read the words that they, they use except for maybe Homer, because that was really oral literature, so what the hell, I don't know exactly what we're reading. But, uh, um, yes, we, mm. yeah, those those are, um, remember last episode we talked about the bicameral mind, the Julian Jaynes book I mentioned, um, yeah. that, uh, you know, people used to think of their inner voice as basically God's voice talking directly to them. Oh, uh, boy, if if that's the case, then then God <laughs> is, is a very tricky person in my life, my goodness. Well, that's what the, that's what the Gnostics certainly think. The Gnostics think that the the God that people equate as the real God is actually an evil demiurge. You know, um, uh, so I'm with the Gnostics. Actually, I'm, I agree with them. Um, but in any case, 
it's it's really i mean i, I really don't think that literature the pre-scientific literature is really accessible to us we again we can sort of read it word for word and get something out of it but not what the original authors intended um you know because we have such a different world view uh that we cannot step into those shoes again they're they're just not there anymore for us there we can see the footprints but we can't wear those shoes anymore um so anyway that was a kind of a weird metaphor um but yeah so I, I my point is that this book the three body problem is is the latest in this manifestation of writing you know writing specifically about a scientific ideas and he does use the latest ones like i said string theory the 11 dimensions you have a computer encoded in a proton the what, what is it called the sophon right the sophons that that sort of screw up the, the scientific advancement of humankind until the aliens get here um it's a it's a wacky story it's a hell of a ride it's a great page turner uh, if you're in that mood, and my problem is that I haven't been in that mood for some years now. I haven't been in the mood to just read straight hard science fiction and just enjoy it for what it is. Um, so it's been a while for me since I've been in that kind of mood. I just, I like, I like you said, Rob, that I, I yearn for that. I need that my prose to be innovative. I need my prose to be to do something to my neurons besides yeah. just the ideas. I need the actual prose to change my neurons, not just the the ideas behind the prose. So. Yes. And, and you know, um, I, I'll say one thing, and then maybe uh, Heston or Roman, maybe you guys can also give us a summary of the book uh, for those who are kind of parachuting in uh, and ha don't have any background with the book. <laughs> okay. But because um, we've kind of, we've alluded to uh, some of the plot. But um, just one sort of period to put on that is, um, you, you mentioned this, whatever, golden age of science fiction in the West in the 20s and 30s. And um, th this fine New Yorker profile of uh, Xi Chin pointed out that it only makes sense that, that science fiction right now is so vital and interesting and, and in China because they're going through their, you know. Oh, is uh, that what the article pointed out? It's funny because I was thinking yeah, exactly the same thing. Yeah. They, so, exactly the same thing. Yeah, because they're, they're right. just going through this cultural, not cultural, really. Um, Technological, social, psychological kind of um, yeah. transformation where as the book begins, right, the book begins with the cultural evolution and all the, the crazy stuff that was going on within the 50s, I believe, in China. Yeah. Um, and then moves on to it kind of jumps back and forth, uh, uh, this flashbacks and flash forwards. Um but this, this, whatever is happening right now in China, this enormous growth uh, and 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 innovation and the the uplifting of uh, you know the poor people into a middle class situation is is exactly what happened post World War II in America, and that's when science fiction was thriving here. So it seems to be a, a product of. Uh, societal change as society sort of embraces um, more of a scientific worldview and uh, has more wealth and builds more more sort of wealth. Um, then you have people coming up with these books where science just flourishes, and then and then it's a um, it's a feedback loop because then what happened in the West with American and British science fiction. Is, is you know Arthur C. Clarke with the idea of the satellites, the, the communication satellite. He came up with that, and then things start be going from fiction to reality. You know, uh, little kids inspired by their reading of the golden era of science fiction grow up to be engineers and and actually strive to invent or create or discover these things that they've been reading about. Yeah. and then you have this great flourishing of the space program. Uh, you know, we got to the moon for crying out loud. Nobody expected that. And I, I think science fiction has a lot to do with that because it, it yeah. you know, you first have to imagine something for it to be realized, you know, undoubtedly. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Heston, you know, you and I talked a little bit and, and, you know, you expressed, um, you know, your that you weren't that into the book and, and, you know, some of your critiques was just sort of almost like structural the way that certain things were revealed or, but, um, you know, you, maybe you could speak to that, but I mean, maybe just first a, a very brief kind of summary of the plot again, for somebody who's kind of parachuting in and 
doesn't even know what the hell this book is about. Well, let, let's let Roman do that because okay. it's been about a month and a half <laughs> since I finished the book. Okay, well, it's 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 a little bit. You, you may have to help me a little bit because it's okay. well. First of all, I don't want to mean. Look, if anybody's going to read this book after this podcast, yeah. I, I I don't want them to be like, you know, oh damn, they ruined it. I mean, because this is it. It really, it really resides. It, it's got it's got spoilers. I mean, if if we if we t- tell you the spoilers, then forget about it. You're not going to enjoy the book that much. I mean, it's the spoilers are amazing. I mean, you're going to really. What I would suggest, um, as a, like I said, it start. It, there's a there's a bunch of um, uh, flash forward, flash backward type of type of uh, narrative devices. It's a little bit frustrating, and in the middle of the book, you're going to feel like you don't want to keep reading. You want to th- you know just like I don't know what's going on exactly. This is too confusing. Oh. Maybe sooner than that. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but then what happens is that he ties it up so nicely in the last, I don't know, fifth of the book or so. Things really, really begin, begin to kind of move fast. And you're like, there's a, there's a bunch of aha moments. And that's why you read science fiction is for those aha moments. Mm. Um, so I don't, I don't think I want to describe the book particularly, except to say that well, we uh, have to. Well, we already mentioned there's aliens involved. Um, there's, well, but you don't. You, how shall I say? You, you don't think we need to set up the basic premise of the book, which is which is not a secret. I mean, it's a it's something that Stephen Hawking's, I think, wrote about, and I I don't think this is a spoiler alert, but the 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 basic idea is the um, the wisdom of trying to communicate with extraterrestrials should should right. earth right try to make contact with intelligent life is that um well i mean pr- I, is that yeah. a prudent thing to Hawking do so, did talk about that and he he weighed in on that many many scientists have weighed in on that it's it's remember we have a program called study which is the the search for extraterrestrial intelligence uh, yeah. it's been going on for decades it's not a very well funded program as you can imagine uh, but but uh, you know so so it is it is part of science fact, not just science fiction. At least the search, obviously. Right. And uh, I don't know if you guys have seen this latest uh, Mars news that there's more and more possibility of finding some sort of life form on Mars. But you know that's not exactly uh, you know intelligent aliens like described in this book. Uh, but the possibility of of, of encountering alien life uh, is. Um, uh, According to Xi Liu and Stephen Hawking, is uh, should be we should be wary of that. We should we shouldn't assume that aliens are going to be benevolent and they're going to yes. spread love it, and peace all around. But right. uh, we should in fact assume the opposite and just hope for the for the latter. Right. Because I, uh, I I would argue if you ask me on the spot why is this book so popular, I would argue that although people in the know or people who occasionally are plugged into science news, this isn't a new idea. But I would say for the general population, myself included, I don't think that idea has been widely examined in the popular culture. I think really? I, I mean look I, look at the fifties and all the UFO and the Martian crazes from you know with Orson Wells. I mean actually Orson Wells is an interesting uh point in factor because what C Jin Liu is trying to say is that uh, is that Contact with alien, intelligent aliens, is is um, fraught with danger. It's fraught with, it's even the idea of that, even the idea that look, the Martians have landed. If you thought, if you take it seriously for just a few minutes, you're gonna run out, run out on the streets and start tearing your hair out and and screaming. But you, but but you are not an exemplar. Which is what happened, by the way, when Orson yeah. Welles did that. I, I mean, that undoubtedly. <laughs> but that's fine. But but Roman, you are not an exemplar of you are someone who's read a lot of science fiction and is is plugged in. There's a postscript to the book where the author essentially says, you know, one of my aims with this book was it it seems ridiculous to me that, um, you know, uh, people on one part of the earth should be very aggressive and, and suspicious and hostile to people on another side of the earth. Whereas when we look to the stars, we tend to get somewhat sentimental and hokey, like, oh, what's out there? And and I, I would argue that the, the reason this book is so popular is because that's probably how most people look at it. Again, not people who are connected to the sciences or have read hard science fiction or are aware of the history of science fiction as you are. So I, I think there is some novelty in that idea to think that, holy shit, 
yeah, what if an advanced society yeah. just wanted yeah, to wipe we, this yeah, out? I mean, it's, again, it's just not a, it's not just about being well read right away. I mean, this it's a concept that's been in society uh, for for uh, at least a hundred years of you know post H.G. Wells, and and it's been popular here and there. Even more so than Jin Liu's book, um, so maybe it's just this is a, the latest iteration of that. Um, but it's not I, yeah. new, Rob. It's not new well, at all. It, it was it was new to me, so maybe I'm the the, the one who's kind of clueless here. Um, well, and, think of ET. How popular ET was. What was ET? It was this contact with alien life, and it was like you remember the movie very well, you know, and you remember the impression it made on you. Mm. Uh, maybe we're just a little blasé about it because of uh, the cultural um, yeah. background that we have in it. I don't know. Because I, I thought there, there's an interesting, uh, again, not trying to give away anything, but there there was a um, a part of the book where there are a series of interviews with, uh, for lack of a better word, government Earth authorities with some some Earthlings who have some connection, so to speak, with, with this advanced uh, – civilization. Mm -hmm. And at one point, the the sort of government official is is sort of saying, uh, he says, you know, why do you have such hope for this, thinking that it can reform and perfect human society? So there is this feeling that uh, among a certain group of characters that humanity has reached a point where it can no longer progress. And so it actually needs outside intervention to kind of stimulate or or bring it further along. And one of these Earthlings who's sympathetic to the uh, alien civilization says, if they can cross the distance between the stars to come to our world, their science must be developed to a very advanced stage. A society with such advanced science must also have more advanced moral standards. And so I, I really think that's one of the key themes of the book and, and, and one of the things that's interesting and worth exploring because I – I would say that people unconsciously believe that the more technological a society is, the more moral it is in some sort of way, even though history tells us almost completely the opposite. In a well, sense. well, does it? I mean, you have people like um, the 20th century was a was a graveyard. Uh, man. Well, what's his name? Um, complete graveyard. The better angels of our nature. You know that that Harvard guy, Steve, uh, Steven Pinker. Yeah. Yes, I mean, he argues that you know that's that. Three. In fact, we have been improving. Uh, morally, but, uh, but I can I could argue just and the so opposite. does Noam Chomsky. By the way, Noam Chomsky also has this point, makes this point. But I, I would argue just the opposite that the the body count in the 20th century w was well, exponentially yeah. higher than any other century. That's before. because so, we have we have uh, weapons of mass destruction. That's why. Right. So so where's <laughs> where's the moral authority there? It, so. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, look, I mean, I mean, women weren't able to vote, but I mean, you can start listing. You can, I mean, the, the, we can argue about this forever. Yeah. Uh, yes, more people are dying, but there's more people on Earth, and again, bigger guns. Um, so, but, but, but look, cli cli climate change is a direct result of a amoral attitude towards development. That growth is good for its own sake, without any ethical or moral pause. An evaluation. So, so I think, and there is interesting themes in the book where you know the, there are these sort of like splinter environmental groups here in China that are, you know, uh, distraught and and really starting to look at technology as uh, a kind of cancer cell, right? That mm. that spreads through society and 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 you know must must be dealt with as as a cancer cell. And so I think. I think these are some of the redeeming kind of ideas in the book. Uh, not oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, look, look, like, like I said, it's a page turner. It's a, it's a, it's an old fashioned uh, barnstormer. It's, it's a great read. There's a lot of ideas in there. Uh, I, I'm just saying that it's, uh, for my taste, it just wasn't the right timing for this book. Uh, I have to be in the right state of mind to read that kind of literature. Um, you know, um, and it's also not that. It just I, I don't know. It wasn't that exciting for me. I mean, yeah. I'm no. I'm I, I, just, I that I agree with. I you know I, I like I remember the last the last science fiction book I read, which was um, I mean meaning read and 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 completely was blown over by, 
was Thomas M. Dish, Camp Concentration. It's a book from, what, the 70s, I believe, or even 69 or something like that. But what, it just blew me away by its writing and obviously its subject matter as well, which is, um, you know, it's a bit um, Steinbeckian in a way because it's it's got this guy who has an intelligence increase and then his intelligence goes back down again, um, like of mice and men. Um, so it's... it's um, Oh, not not my man. That's I'm sorry, I got the wrong book. But in any case, it's um, it it really blew me away, and I still remember the experience of reading that. Reading this book, the Three Body Problem, I never I never had that tingle. I never had that um, yeah. excitement about what I was reading and the possibilities of it and why. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a very human story. You know what right. I mean? I mean, the characters again, and the the author admits this. The characters are secondary to him. The plot is. Is important and the ideas are even more important. Um, yeah, really, to me, the most rounded character in the book seems to be this personification of science, almost. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's where it's like it's almost like the the science is the most well-rounded. That's a good point. I love book. that point. All, you know, all yeah, the yeah, characters yeah. are just these. You know, yeah, like you said, just secondary to to the science and the idea. Um, right. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, so it's, it's look, look, it's, I would definitely recommend this book. It's a great book for, to read, like if you're on vacation or if you're on a long trip on a long flight, you'll, you'll, you'll turn the pages, you'll enjoy the story and the payoff at the end is definitely worth it. Um, I just, I just want people to also be aware that there's a a different kind of science fiction that to my mind brings much richer satisfaction even though the ideas might be not as grandiose because it doesn't deal with physics let's say which is you know our whole universe but it maybe deals with psychology which in a strange way is our whole universe as well (laughs) Um, but in a different way Um, so but it's very hard to extract awe from the softer sciences it's it's much harder because in physics you have these the the concepts are already mind-blowing to begin with you know, eleven dimensions. What the hell does that mean? Go have some fun explaining that, and you have you have a best-selling book. Um, you know, tack on some characters and fuck around with eleven dimensions, and you have something interesting. But uh, this author, to give him credit, is not just using one or two concepts. He's using a lot of concepts, yeah. a lot of the latest concepts in science, and it's almost a, a nice popularization of these concepts. Um, yeah, it brings them I- to the popular consciousness. You know. Unlike, like, let's say, um, an article in a science journal uh, explaining it, you know? Yeah. I, I guess one of the things that makes me think about is, um, you know, for example, in the world of music, like, um, you know, some of those, those 70s arena rock bands who are incredibly talented technically. I'm thinking of Rush or, I don't know, Jethro Tull or something like that, where I, I, I recognize the musicianship, the technical virtuosity. Um, but I never could really identify with, with any of these, um, these bands. And then suddenly punk came around and they could barely play their instruments. And it was like three chords, <laughs> but, but there was, there was this overwhelming experience of, of life, of art, of, mm-hmm. of, of a sense of authenticity, of originality with the sex pistols or the clash or, or joy division. And so, uh, but, but having said that, you know, you can you can burn yourself out listening to a clash record after a while because there is a it's not yeah super- but then you, but then you listen to their to their descendants and what have they done with the music what's you know what where does the music service going from there it's like yeah it's interesting you mentioned punk and how it kind of uh, woke you up a little bit and invigorated you it's something new it really timing wise it really coincides with the new wave in science fiction yeah yes right? it's the same kind of similar you- sensibility. Are you talking um, about? I mean, does that include because uh, like Neuromancer and William Gibson, or is that a well? That's a that's a little bit later, and yeah. and Neuromancer is actually a good example of, uh, I guess I would call it hard science fiction. It's not really soft science fiction, but it's a good example of a book that, unlike the Three Body Problem, has created has, has created some sort of uh, its own reality. Uh, right, because you have hackers, you have the, a lot of the language, uh, cyberspace. Uh, yeah, it's a cyberpunk novel, right? So right, I mean it's the original one, right? It's yeah, the original. Yeah. 
So it, it really created its own genre, created its own um, uh, terminology that eventually seeped into popular culture and not just popular culture, but into culture in general, because we have, you know, like I said, people like hackers and mm. the whole idea of hackers was born in that book, you know, or in, in that in that similar vein of books that was kind of popping out that, at that time. Um, so what makes what makes for for a set of scientific uh, you know ideas coming out in fiction what makes them more or or less effective like neuromancer snow crash neil stevenson for instance these books were pivotal for the genre the three body problem yeah it's a bestseller it's a it's a cross cultural uh yeah hot boiler uh but is it a new thing no it's not yeah. It's very much an old-fashioned, uh, very good, hard science fiction novel. But it's old-fashioned mm. in that sense, even though it's dealing with the latest physics uh, discoveries, mm. you know. Mm. Um, so, go ahead, sorry. I drew a lot of um, comparisons between, and I'm probably going to get lynched for saying this, but I drew a lot of, <laughs> I drew a lot of comparisons between this and uh, Philip K. Dick's books, right? Because I always feel like when I'm reading a Philip K. Dick book, there's this amazing idea and he never quite delivers on it for me, right? <laughs> um, it's just, it's always the case when I read his books. Uh, really? You know, maybe it's just a personal preference thing. But, but yeah, there's always like, for me, there has to be more than a cool idea, right? Like there has to be, for right. me, I guess it's all about rounded characters. And well, for, 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 for Phil Dick, I think it's more of a, as opposed to, again, he wasn't a hard science fiction writer. He was probably the definition of a soft science fiction writer. I mean, in that yeah, probably. he really just really wanted to deal with our present and how, how do we deal with each other and, and how do we, you know, what's, what's our world, you know, what, what, how are we to deal with this new world? And I actually, I, I strangely with Philip K. Dick, I blame him. Because I have this, I have this theory that you first have to imagine something for it to happen, and unfortunately, he, by reflecting what was currently happening, I mean, he, and he did it very accurately. He projected his imagination to what what's possible, and it wasn't pretty. It wasn't good, uh, and we have now have embodied his imagination. Now we live in a Philip K. Dick world, uh, <laughs> and I don't mean that allegorically, you know. <laughs> Which is so I, I I'm a strange, obviously, tongue in cheek, mostly maybe halfway, maybe fifty percent tongue in cheek. I blame P PKD for our world, for the disaster that we we are experiencing currently, because really he created it in in a lot of his in in his imagination, because his imagination leaked, right? It leaked all over our culture. It's it's in it's in movies, it's in concepts. It's in it's in movies that are not even based on his books, like The Matrix. You know, it's not based on Philip K. Dick, but yet it's all Philip K. Dick. Um, so, so maybe Philip K. Dick is the demiurge. <laughs> maybe he is the, the gnostic evil god, <laughs> which is kind of funny because he actually Philip K. Dick does deal with gnosticism as well, uh, very much so. Uh, one of his books is actually explicitly about gnosticism. So. It's interesting. I, I really, I really think that um, again, unlike this book, unlike the Three Body Problem, uh, which is uh, was a, again bestseller, made some waves, but Philip K. Dick, to my mind, didn't just make waves. He created the modern world. <laughs> All right. I mean, I know it's an outrageous statement, and I've said a few outrageous statements in this podcast, but I love outrageous statements because they, I don't know, they're outrageous. They're fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot there. Yeah. Um, and I, I will just point out, since we're talking about Philip K. Dick, that um, if we are to think along with our Buddhist friends, uh, Roman has a lot of karma with Phil K. Dick. He, he actually moved from New England halfway across the country and, and somewhat randomly landed in Santa Ana, California, which is not a, a particularly significant town and it happened to be a place where Philip K. Dick landed during the battle years and you lived in an apartment and I lived there briefly with you just a stone's throw from the hospital yeah. in Santa Ana where he passed yeah. away. Yeah, so, Kitty Corner. Yeah, Kitty Corner from the hospital, from the Western Medical Center where, yeah. where Philip, in fact, I, the the 7-Eleven where he 
he had a stroke uh, is is down the street from that apartment and I've been there many times and I I never ever ordered orange soda that 7-Eleven <laughs> that was that was Philip Kittick's favorite drink orange you know, Fanta and mm. he would go there and get horrible food which is part of the reason why he got a stroke in the first place uh he would just get horrible food and orange soda at that 7-Eleven I actually made a pilgrimage to his apartment in Santa Ana which you know was turned into a condo uh, and he was actually able to afford to buy a condo because Blade Runner was about to come out and he was actually making some decent money. Yeah. And I went to um, library school at um, uh, UC Fullerton, this, uh, UC California at Fullerton, where Philip K. Dick used to hang out on campus quite a bit and where the Philip K. Dick papers are stored uh, on the third floor of the building where I got my master's degree. So, yeah, so <laughs> I, have, I have a weird karmic connection to PKD you, for You've sure. got some karma there. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and – in fact, living in Southern California and particularly in Orange County in Santa Ana, when I I saw the uh, uh, I I read uh, a scanner darkly, and then I saw the uh, the really cool animated yeah, it's uh, quite good. Was it Richard Linkletter? I yes, think directed it. it. Yep, yep. And the paranoia of being in this seemingly perfect sunny Southern California suburb with, you know, uh, ranch houses and palm trees. But, but there is something weirdly evil, um, under the surface in Los Angeles in Southern California. And I think it's captured really well, um, uh, in that book and in his, his writing. So, you know, I kind of feel like we've reached a natural sort of end point in a certain way. Um, maybe, just closing thoughts in general about science fiction or this book or, uh, you know, again, I think I keep thinking of our listener who is likely not super initiated. So any closing thoughts, ideas, advice, uh, Roman and Heston for, for people listening in, I guess I would say if you like dream sequences, (laughs) <laughs> this is the book for you. Okay. Because <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of was one one of the reasons I didn't enjoy the book very much. Yeah. Is um this mechanic? There's a pretty. He uses this mechanic of this video game, right? That the the yep. character goes into and experiences these weird, sort of dreamlike, uh, sequences of events. Um, and I really didn't enjoy that very much. I think I'm just tired of the, the sort of dream mechanic uh, yep. in general. I think I personally think it's kind of lazy. Yeah. Um, mm. And I don't know. It, it, so I didn't really enjoy that very much. And I didn't really enjoy the big info dumps either, like the massive sort of long stretches of, you know, physics is happening now. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, which, but, you know, at the same time, I've already recommended this book to to multiple people that I know because I know that they would really enjoy yeah so that style of writing and that you know those info dumps so so yeah. so I I would I would challenge you Heston then but however you are uh widely read in sci- science fiction sorry Roman mm-hmm. um what what would you recommend to a, a largely literary reader audience what, I mean what's one of your favorite sci-fi books that might be um well, probably, you know, we've already got, we've already done The Left Hand of Darkness. Yeah. And, you know, that's probably my all-time favorite science fiction novel. Yeah. Well, Anything what about something like like a hard science fiction novel, Heston? Anything in that genre? Well, you know, I have read a lot of, like, Asimov and um, Arthur C. Clarke. I, I don't think, I don't think you can really go wrong with, with Isaac Asimov. That's true. Right. That's true. Yeah, or, yeah well, the, yeah, the foundation series. I mean, a lot of a lot of his stuff is a little bit juvenile. Feels juvenile at this point in my life. Uh, yeah, but he actually yeah, wrote for the juvenile market, so that's mm. uh, the the, know, the, the pre-YA market. My goodness. Yeah, yeah, the pre-YA. Uh, <laughs> you know, it existed, believe it or not. Um, but but yeah, I mean, uh, you can always go back to the golden era, and also you know, re- recent stuff and things like. Uh, Larry Niven's uh, Ringworld and Ringworld Engineers, a sequel. Uh, that was a wonderful hard science fiction novel that also had, um, you know, he put he put some uh, some mustard on his characters, meaning they're 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 tasty, meaning they're you know they're, they're a little bit more interesting characters. The aliens are interesting. Um, it's not just not just scientific ideas. I don't know if you Heston, have you read uh, Ringworld at all? I I haven't. It's on the bookcase. 
Oh, you haven't. Yeah, I haven't got around to it. It's yeah. it's a it's it's a wonderful hard, just pure hard science fiction novel, just idea driven, uh, and actually, that some of the ideas were were lambasted by people, by fans. They were like, "Wait a second, this is wrong. This is wrong. This can't be it." And then in the sequel, uh, Larry Niven kind of fixed all the technical issues with oh, his really? ideas, with his scientific. Well, because you know, when you start projecting scientific ideas into yeah. a fictional setting, you, you know, you, unless you're, you know, totally brilliant uh, scientist yourself, you you can easily go wrong. You know, things are like, well, this this world can't exist because it will collapse on itself. You know, <laughs> blah blah blah. Uh, I'm actually reading a science fiction novel right now mm. that I'm thoroughly enjoying uh, called um, Ancillary Justice. By oh Anne yes, and Leaky. Yes, it won the yeah. and the Nebula, I believe, in the past. Yeah, it did. It, yeah. yeah, and I, I can't work out if it's a soft or hard sci-fi novel at this point. I'm about 100 pages that's in. That's a good I, sign. That means that right. the author's doing something right. I love right. it. So it is, it is very interesting. Um, I would definitely recommend it more than Three-Body Problem at well, this there point. You there you can, go. Can you, um, can you please repeat the author in the novel one more time for our audience? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, the, and it's called Ancillary Justice, and the author is Anne Leckie. Nice. And you can't really, you can't really go wrong. If you want to read something, some good science fiction, just go to the Hugo, Hugo the Nebula Awards website, and look which books won in the past, you know, five, ten years. If you want something more recent, uh, and you really can't go wrong with picking one of those books because the the Nebula Award is given by the uh, by the writers. Um, you know, they belong to the Science Fiction whatever Writers Association of America, whatever it is. So it's picked by writers and the Hugo Award is picked by fans and often the uh, same book wins both, but not always. Um, so either one of those awards, if you just want a good sort of guide to what what's good to read in that genre, you can just go to those sites and then pick up, up a book like, like Anne Leakey's book. Um, uh, so, you know, but for me, I, I, I haven't read that much science fiction lately because I've, I've been, you know, not in that mood. I got to be in the mood for that. And when I travel, usually is when I'm in the mood for reading something like that. Like, you know, when you're stuck in an airplane for like 10 hours, um, it's it's not exactly proof material, though it could be. Mm. Um, uh, so the last book that I read that was really good, and I'm, I'm blanking out uh, on the author's name. Well, first of all, Ian Banks is wonderful. I don't, uh, Heston, have you read any Ian Banks? Yeah, he's he's... He's been dead for now, what, five, seven, eight years? Is, is He unfortunately died relatively early from cancer. Uh, but his culture series novels are wonderful. Rob, you would actually enjoy them too. Yeah. Um, but there's just too many of them. There's a lot of books. They all deal with um, this advanced uh, civilization called the culture, um, where it's a kind of utopian post-scarcity you know, society of you know, aliens, humans, uh, and various advanced AIs and they all kind of just live in the socialist <laughs> universe. It's really, really quite enjoyable because it, it's both hard and soft science fiction. Um, but the soft part is really what I'm enjoying. I enjoy, I enjoy in the banks uh, in, in the culture series, you know, because it deals with, you know, societal issues. Like how do we, you know, with capitalism, socialism, what, what, what works, you know, um, what does work in, in any kind of, Imagine yeah. scenario. You so. know, I, um, I, I'll throw out a book that I have not begun, um, but it sort of caught my eye, uh, and for a very specific reason, I have recently completed a novel that deals with a a kind of uh, rogue bad guy Jesuit priest who is exiled to Japan, and so I was I was looking at you know what other books are out there that actually have Jesuit priests as central characters and you know I, I suppose not surprisingly there aren't too many um but there is a science fiction novel called yes. um, the sparrow and it was uh, written by uh mary uh doria russell and i picked this up and, and i guess one of the premises is um uh jesuit priests go off and and kind of colonize and and actually kind of become the government of uh this uh you know alien uh planet and um, it's supposed to be quite good. And it also reminded me what what Heston has said many, many times and emphasized that uh, much of the best science fiction uh, these days is being done by women. Mm -hmm. And so, that's um, true. yeah, so that that's something that's on my list. 
Um, but it's funny you mentioned the Jesuits. Uh, well, you know, there's there's, there's a much more famous or at least foundational uh, science fiction book that deals with a Jesuit. Um, it's called A Case of Conscience by oh. uh, James Blish, published in 58, 1958. It's the story of a Jesuit priest who investigates an alien race that has no religion yet. You know? Ah, okay. So, so, but yet it still has this kind of weird uh, innate sense of morality, uh, so which is uh, obviously conflicts with Catholic teaching. Uh, and uh, Rob, you would love this because uh, there's a, a major, uh, I believe a major thing here is Finnegan's Wake. There's a, there's a, Finnegan's Wake plays a major sort of p pivotal role in this book uh, by James Blish from 1958. So huh. I, I've been I meeting. I thought you were going to say the can a canticle for Leibowitz. Yeah. Also, well, that's another one. That's another yeah, one. It's a right. post-apocalyptic uh, in the novel. Uh, yes. That's just really wonderful. I remember really, really enjoying it when I read it, even though it's a little scary. Um, but yeah, there's a whole genre, this kind of uh, yeah, you know, religious, <laughs> if you, for lack of a better word, religiously uh, influenced science fiction. Yeah. Um, but I just love the fact that Finnegan's Wake shows up in a in 1958 uh, science fiction novel. Nice. And, and plays a major, major. Nice. And by the way, Finnegan's Wake, I just, I, I got to push this because this is one of my favorite uh, science fiction novellas, not a novel, uh, but yet again by Philip Jose Farmer, which I recommended last time um, mm. to Heston. I recommended the Riverworld series, but Philip Jose Farmer has this novella called, um, oh my gosh, uh, Riders, of the, Riders of the Purple Wage. It's called Riders of the Purple Wage. It's written in the Joycean Finnegan's Wake style. Oh, wow. Good luck there. Uh, oh, no, but it's not totally like that. You know, it's readable. It's not like, a, you know, two dozen languages slammed into each other <laughs> in a, in a, like a particle accelerator type of deal. No, it's it's really English, but it's written in a very fluid Joycean type language, you know, uh, and, but it's so inventive and so funny. Uh, I've been urging people to read this novella for years. Um, if you're looking for something that's going to make your neurons pop in all kinds of directions, um, the Writers of the Purple Wage by uh, Philip Jose Farmer. It's a, the title is a play on, uh, I believe, uh, some sort of a cowboy thing, <laughs> Writers of the Purple Sage. Um, so this is a purple wage where everybody gets sort of got dull from the government and people just kind of like, it's a little bit, a little bit of a depressing novella because people just don't really do very creative things with all the free time that uh, is provided by the affluent society. They do some weird shit. That's um, you know, that not sounds like sounds like great. our society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, but it's <laughs> like just the lang the language like, and the concept starts. You know, really, I, I just love that book. I absolutely like, love it. Like attention, if you are a bored, affluent real estate developer, don't run for president, please. Uh, just, to, <laughs> just, you know, use your boredom in other ways, please. Yeah, join the Jesuits. <laughs> please, please, go to the no, monastery somewhere. No, no, the Catholic Church has enough problems. I don't want someone like that in there. Yeah, I guess they don't need any, any golden shower uh, type of situations on their hands. They already have um, too many of those. <laughs> All right, on that note, um, uh, I, Perhaps I'll, I'll sort of wrap it up here uh, with a little bit of housekeeping. Um, really kind of cool news, good news. Our next podcast um, in early November, we're going to welcome uh, the author uh, Greg Gerke. He has a, a, a new book of literary essays out as well as a new book of short stories. So um, we are going to have him on. Um, we will be tweeting out and uh, uh releasing information on Instagram, et cetera, uh, about his books and more about him um, so that you can uh, join us for that. Um, I think you're going to find that um, the kinds of folks that he's interested in writes about are, are yeah. really interesting. And, yeah, and yeah, think. yeah, absolutely. I mean, Greg seems to be our, our type of guy. He's he's uh, he's steeped in literature. He lives and breathes it. Um, I started reading some of his essays, and I'm just really, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, we're definitely going to have a lively conversation. So tune in, please. It's going to be really fun. Indeed. So uh, with that, we'll say thanks again for listening and remind you that you can follow 
the Feeling Bookish podcast on Twitter and also now on Instagram at Feeling Bookish Podcast. Um, and so I'm Robert Fay, author at Three Quarks Daily and also on Twitter at Robert Fay One. And Roman Sivkin, you can follow him on Twitter uh, at Zenju23. And nope, Heston. No, just Zenju. Just Zenju. Sorry, I added 23. It's the magical mystical that's, number. That's my email. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, and I'll also be giving out Roman's cell phone number if you'd like yes. to call him, particularly late at 23, night. 23, 23, 23, 23, 23, 23. <laughs> and you can also follow the somewhat reclusive and, you know, humble Heston Hoffman at Not Heston a Jesuit. Hoffman on Instagram. <laughs> no, uh, Heston is actually a secret redemptorist. So, not a Jesuit. I like that. Um, I like that, uh, Heston. I like that for your middle name, Heston. Not a Jesuit, right? <laughs> I don't know. Why. That's have a ring to it, <laughs> right? Has a ring to it, exactly. <laughs> I, I think. I think yes. Heston is. Uh, he's finished with uh, religions that begin with a J. So I think that's sort of. That's, that's true. Yeah. Um, so thanks, guys, for for the fun conversation. It's been cool, and we'll talk next time. All right. Bye bye. Yeah, bye. Bye, guys. Thank you.